Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. This is the time of year when people get a chance to scare everybody with potentially negative uh, predictions for the year ahead or potentially cheer them up with positive predictions here with a perhaps a negative one. Uh, but but a very important one is Anurag Rana, senior software and IT services analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, Anurag, one of your predictions for 2017 is that cyber attacks are going to be the biggest threat to the global economy. Can you please elaborate? Uh, thanks, Lisa. So, you know, cyber attacks have been going on for a very long period of time, and it's nothing new, frankly. But what we have seen, at least in the past six months, is that both the number of attacks and the sophistications of these attacks have actually accelerated. So we are, you know, running in terms of, uh, you know, uh, new malware discovered every day is growing at a rate we have never seen before. So as you look into businesses that are unable to protect themselves properly. Uh, we just saw the, the big attack on DVIN, which uh, you know paralyzed a lot of the um, internet infrastructure for a while. Um, if you could have those kinds of attacks on critical infrastructures of a country, whether it would be, you know, transportation, logistics, utilities, you know, those have the capacity to seriously uh, dent the economy of a particular country. Anurag, can you speak about shadow brokers? Because I was reading a story having to do with a dump of information that came supposedly from the NSA, the National Security Agency. And these are cyber weapons that are for sale on the internet. Is that something that can be stopped or is you just have to accept that this stuff is always going to be there? See, we have to accept that there is a lot of bad stuff that's coming almost for every industry, every vertical, every government. And the problem is that no individual, no individual company, um, no matter what their size is, would have a very difficult time to block any of these things because of the changing nature of these attacks. So it is it is going to be, you know, a, a truly a, an extremely collaborative effort uh, that would involve both the private sector and the public sector and government's really big involvement in it to come up with a system of information sharing for these attacks just so that people are aware, uh, you know, uh, of, of uh, what kind of new malware is coming out. Anurag, can you walk us through how a malware attack could directly lead to a substantial slowdown in a specific economy? I mean, think about it. I mean, just in the financial services vertical, um, if I get up tomorrow morning and I don't find my money in the Schwab account, I mean, what would it? What would it do? What about think about the stock exchanges? Think about the airlines. Think about you know just the power grids. Um, what would happen is you can have malwares going through the network for any of these uh, critical infrastructure uh, uh, you know, elements. And sometimes these infrastructures are provided by third parties, which is you know, what we saw, for example, in the case of Target. It wasn't Target's uh, main infrastructure, but it was one of the third party vendors. So are you seeing that a lot of companies are substantially boosting their expenditures on uh, software safety? And do you think it's enough? No, I, I mean, they are boosting. There is a blank check for most, 
you know, companies for their security departments as to what they're going to buy. But frankly, you know, in in that grand sense, it's not enough just because, as I said, the number and the sophistication of these attacks are growing at a much faster rate uh, than we have ever seen before. So mathematically, it's very difficult for an IT department to prevent uh, these numbers from flowing into their system. They just have to, you know, wish and, um, you know, basically pray that it's it's you know they can detect it much faster than um, you know in the previous times I don't know if praying is necessarily going to work but is there a proactive position that companies can adopt I mean as I said they are spending a lot of money to prevent this so that's the first thing that's, but to you know, prevent I'm talking about going out and actually combating there the are, cyber attacks. You know, the financial industry, for example, is has uh, made an effort to share information between banks as to you know who attacks and what kind of viruses are there. But you really need this, in my view, at the at the government level, where um, you know the government gets kind of a database of a lot of these viruses coming in and is able to quickly. Uh, you know, share that information with the rest of the world. One of the things we wrote on our on our piece was a large portion of software you know, it's still extremely old in terms of people don't update their firmware, either in their hardware or networking equipment. Even simple stuff like that can, you know, prevent from both consumers as well as companies to, uh, you know, against attacks. Anurag, you're talking about how the uh, the amount and the sophistication of the attacks has increased meaningfully this year. Is there a sense of who is behind that or whether you some of the players i imagine it's not just one no i mean in fact the the the, the you know more increasing part is i mean it used to be state sponsored it is still uh, you know a portion of that is state sponsored but a, there is a lot more money to be made here ransomwares have become extremely large over the last uh, one and a half two years because they can what they can do is they can block up your uh, you know take control of all your files, they put an encryption on it, and they will say, well, if you need us to decrypt it, just pay us $10,000, for example, or $20,000. The amounts are not that large, but the number has become extremely large for a small and medium-sized business, and that's becoming a very lucrative business for a lot of people. Now, this is in addition to this, the simple stuff as credit card information, you know, healthcare information, your social security numbers, all of those are up for sales at you know, anywhere from $10 a piece to 50 bucks uh, out there. Happy New Year. Thank you so much. Anurag Rana, Senior Software and IT Services Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. We've all been talking about the food deflation trend that we've seen uh, growing across the world, really, uh, but particularly in the U.S. with corn, wheat and other commodity prices falling. But will 2017 be a bit of a different year? I want to bring in Mike McLone, commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, and Sal Ghiberti, president and founder of Tucrium Trading, an agricultural uh, commodity trading firm. So, uh, Mike, I want to start with you. Are you expecting to see some kind of resurgence in the prices for some of these uh, uh, hallmark commodities. I think that's a high risk most notably in the grains. And if you look at it from a, you know, 40,000 um 
feet overview. This year is quite significant because the entire agriculture market was actually up. Grains were actually up despite the largest harvest in the history of the world in U.S., basically U.S. Uh, harvest. If it's not going to, you know, if the market won't go down in an environment like that, it's probably at risk of doing the opposite. And the main reason is demand. Demand has just picked up exponentially. We've had 30-year highs in the velocity of the increase in demand in a lot of the grains. So that makes the market more susceptible to potential risk of lower production next year. Now, I'm not predicting the weather, but generally, if we have, you know, agriculture is always about the weather, but if we have a weather event, it's more likely to probably increase more than in history because of this substantial shift in increase in demand. Sal, do you agree with, uh, with Mike? And maybe you could then get into some details. I want to start with soybeans and Chinese imports. Sure. I do agree with Mike in that, I mean, the velocity of demand, that's an interesting statistic. Demand is rising. And, you know, every year in the in recent memory, we have had an increase in demand, primarily because global population is increasing. So all the grains, you're using more grains because there are more people, more animals to feed. People eat the animals. Um, soybeans in particular, they're kind of like the lost middle child. So the big three grains of corn, corn, soybeans, and wheat. Soybeans and corn share acreage. So you either plant soybeans or corn in the same dirt. And soybeans, the import pace of China has been beyond people's wildest expectations. It's primarily feeding uh, their swine, poultry, and aquaculture industries because they are increasing the meat intake and protein intake via meats in their diets. It's beyond anything anyone could have predicted. I was going to say, soybean futures are up 17% in Chicago this year. Uh, that's correct. And our, you know, of our funds, we, we have the ETFs out there and corn, soybeans, and wheat, they're each a different ETF. And soybeans, the smallest, it's like the lost child, you know, that middle child that's ignored, but it's the smartest one. They, they, soybeans have really been the best performer this year in the ag sector. And, um, wheat has been the worst and wheat is very interesting as well, because there, you had some winter kills, we believe two nights ago in the, in, you know, the prime winter wheat growing areas of the United States have less than two inches of snow and 30 below 10 temperatures a couple of days ago. That's of some concern, and only farmers are talking about it. So it's very interesting that you have increasing demand, and you you really do have uncertainty of supply in that um, every five to seven years, if you look back statistically, there tends to be a major drought in one of these big three crops. And price history shows us that the prices um, rise very significantly. I mean, when you have increasing demand that does not abate, even if it doesn't rain somewhere, the, you know, you can figure out what's going to happen to the price. So if there is a weather event, uh, Mike, like you were talking about, just how much could the prices of wheat and corn increase? Well, the, let's use the most recent history. 2012 was the last significant weather event in the U.S. It was basically the flash drought. It was only one month that you know, we basically got no rain in the grain belt in July, August area. And the price of corn, soybeans, and wheat, notably corn and, bean, and beans, doubled, at least doubled. They went to about 8 bucks in corn. Currently, in corn, we're below $4. So that's the risk. Um, and so here we are, about, about the same price as when we started out in 2012. So that's, I guess that's the key risk. And that was a bit of an extreme event. And I think um, it's not so much a drought we have to worry about. It's just that, as Sal mentioned, that increase, exp- and usually in production, usually lasts in five-year increments. Now we're into the fifth year. It's just we can't expect this type of production to continue to increase as records. We expect some normalization. Normalization means 
potentially market should recover. Now, we're already starting to price a little bit in, that, uh, in. soybeans are up on the year, and we'll see how, you know, we're waiting for the next month or two to see how um, production comes in South America. That's the first indication. Sal, well, I got a thought for a trade uh, going into 2017 where you'd like to be positioned right now. Um, you know, we're not investment advisors, but I think people should speak very seriously with their advisors and look at, you know, it, it's not necessarily a trade. When things turn, grains are definitely in a down and sideways market right now because of the supply. But again, demand is steady. Supply is uncertain every year. There are no seeds in the ground in the Northern Hemisphere right now. And so I, I think that what people should look at is maybe looking at an allocation and talk to their advisor about into directly these grain products. Because as Mike said, the upside is actually explosive. And I know this time of year people look to put, you know, X percent of their portfolio in gold and do a little rebalancing. I think people should discuss very seriously with their advisors corn, wheat, soybeans, these things are at or near their cost of production. They're very low. They're in a four-year downtrend, which is very, very rare. And their their upside is, is quite significant. I think on a risk-reward just from a farmer, if you're a farmer, you're looking at 350 corn right now. Could it go to $3? Of course it can if we right. have another bumper crop year. Can it go to you know $8 where it was a few years ago? Anything's possible with, with the demand the way it is. Any, anything's possible. All right. Thanks very much. Uh, Sal Gilberti, he is the president, the chief investment officer, and the co-founder of Tucrium Trading. Uh, he's the sponsor of corn, soybean, wheat, cane. These are all single commodity agriculture ETFs, and they trade on the New York Stock Exchange. And our thanks, of course, to Mike McClone, commodity strategist, Bloomberg Intelligence. Deutsche Bank. It is the bank of choice for President-elect Donald Trump, or at least one of them. Uh, and it has about $300 million in loans extended to the Trump organization. Uh, with us is Carrie Geiger, a Bloomberg News reporter who co-authored a really interesting story uh, that I thought illuminated this issue and sort of some of the potential conflicts that could arise. Deutsche Bank is reportedly, according to her reporting, um, trying to renegotiate some of the, uh, rewrite some of these contracts. Can you explain what they're trying to accomplish? Right. So so Trump has done business with Deutsche Bank for the last couple decades, starting with, you know, relatively small lending projects for his 40 Wall Street project um, back in the 90s. And the relationship, despite some pretty messy legal battles between the two has stayed and they it, Deutsche Bank is essentially one of the the main banks for Donald Trump's business now to keep in mind Donald Trump does not have a lot of debt compared to the size of his overall empire um, so it's not a significant amount of money if you look at that um, but these loans were basically done on a recourse level which means that there are some personal guarantees tied to these loans and these are not an uncommon way to do these types of loans um, but as we've seen in some court documents and other types of reporting with some previous loans where he's had recourse, if you don't pay the full amount of the loan when it comes due, then you would personally be have to make a sizable payment, and that could be in the tens of millions of dollars. So you have this extremely unusual, probably unprecedented, I think we could say, situation where you have a president that owes a bank money. Um, and basically, how do you manage that relationship going forward? Now, it's not Deutsche Bank's fault. They didn't do anything wrong that Donald Trump got elected president. It's not Donald Trump's fault that he's got a 
personal um, and business loans with this bank. Um, so the two of them just kind of have to figure out how to do this. Obviously, one of the big, big topics with the Trump presidency is conflict of interest and how his business empire will influence decisions in the White House and vice versa. And this is just one of, uh, one of many things that they're looking at for this. Carrie, isn't there an ongoing investigation into Deutsche Bank? So this is the other kind of interesting um, kind of ethical question that we're looking at. So Deutsche Bank is under investigations for a couple of different things. One is for mortgage-backed security sales, which every bank on Wall Street has had to go through with a settlement process with um, the Department of Justice. It's their turn now. We're likely to see that settlement relatively soon. It's going to be in the billions of dollars probably. Um, They're also under investigations for the way that they did some trading in Russia. Um, That is a criminal investigation being done by the Department of Justice. So the issue with that is if you have a relationship between the standing president of the United States and an investment bank that's under investigation by the Department of Justice, what is the issue if the person overseeing the Department of Justice is a presidential appointee of his choice? Does it create I mean, is it just bad optics? Does it create uh, a situation where Deutsche Bank could get more favorable terms? I mean, we don't really know what this, what what the outcome is, or what's going to happen. What are the potential conflicts of interest? Um Given the way that these $300 million in loans are currently arranged, you talked about how uh, as one sort of uh, potential collateral measure, they could uh, Deutsche Bank could access the president himself or the president-elect himself uh, and require millions of dollars of payments. Uh, is that the main concern or is there something else? I think for Deutsche Bank, you know, and I, I can't speak on their behalf. They obviously did not comment for the article. But, you know, in talking to people that follow this issue quite closely and the whole conflict of interest issue closely, you know, it really is an issue of, of awkwardness for the bank. It's, it's, it's very low probability that these loans will default and they'll ever have to call on those personal guarantees. Um, but if they wanted to restructure the loans to kind of remove that, basically to kind of ease some of those concerns, you know, typically the way you would do that is you would increase the interest rate because you're taking away a guarantee. You would make the requirements on how the money is spent a little bit more restrictive. So there's all sorts of ways that you can do this, and they're not necessarily in favor for the bank or, or Trump. Thanks very much. Kerry Geiger, financial crimes reporter for Bloomberg News telling us about President-elect Donald Trump and his relationship with Deutsche Bank. When I think of Carl Icahn, I think of the history of U.S. business. RJR Nabisco, TWA, Texaco, Gulf and Western, Uniroyal, Blockbuster, Motorola. I I think of Phil Ackman. Well, now you think of Bill Ackman, indeed. I wonder what Bill Ackman's thinking today as Carl Icahn has been named as President-elect Donald Trump's special advisor. Here to tell us more, Mike Dorning, Bloomberg's White House correspondent. Mike, tell us about this selection of Carl Icahn as a special advisor. Do we know any details about what he'll be advising on? We know that he'll be focused on uh, reducing regulation as uh, as uh, President-elect Trump put it, on he'll be a czar on "quote unquote" strangling regulations um, and how to uh, remove regulations to improve economic growth. 
Mike, you know, this is not a post that's ever been held before. It's a newly created post that has no uh, particular that I know of conflicts uh, of interest types of laws governing it. Um, what will Carl Icahn's steps be, if any? Are we getting any, indica- any indication whether he'll divest himself of any of his holdings in some of these companies that would most benefit from uh, deregulation in certain industries? I'm thinking specifically in energy, among others. We haven't gotten any indications on what he'll do on that yet. Um, now, Democrats have already criticized this, saying, you know, this man has huge interest in oil refineries, for instance, which uh, you know have an interest in uh, lower costs uh, from pollution regulations. But obviously, the people who live around the uh, refineries have an interest in cleaner air and stuff like that. And they've gone down the line and say a lot of his business investments would benefit directly if regulations that help the public health or public safety were reduced. So this issue of a conflict of interest is something that we'll be hearing a lot about politically. Is there any kind of disclosure that he will have to make prior to attending any meetings with the president-elect? You know, I actually am not sure what the disclosure requirements are if you're not paid. And it's not clear whether this special advisor role is going to be something akin to what Paul Volcker did, where he was essentially didn't work for the president, but he was just giving him advice and convening a council, or whether he'll be a paid person on the White House staff. Um, but the issue of what conflicts he has is one that will be litigated politically. And as far as confirmation goes, since it's a new post that hasn't been had before, does he have to be confirmed in any way? No, you do not have to be confirmed unless the post is created by law and requires a Senate confirmation. So most of the president's advisors are not confirmed. Some exceptions are like the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. That is a uh, post created by law, which has to be confirmed. On the other hand, the director of the National Economic Council, the post Gary Cohn from Goldman Sachs, has been appointed to which is a more powerful position, usually there's no confirmation required on that. The only thing is the president is relying on you for advice. Would this be the same case for Kellyanne Conway, a former campaign manager and advisor to President-elect Trump? She would have to make a disclosure as an employee, but she wouldn't be subject to confirmation. And indeed, um, uh, Gary Cohn will have to make a disclosure, too, as do other employees of the executive branch in high positions. What's been the reaction uh, to Carl Icahn's appointment to this position from from Washington folks? Well, um, the, the main reaction so far is coming from uh, Democrats and Democratic Party organizations, which have said it's a terrible conflict of interest. Um, there hasn't been a huge uh, sense of surprise in Washington because Carl Icahn was someone who uh, – uh, President-elect Trump repeatedly talked about in campaign as the type of person whose advice he would like to get. The only surprise here is in what capacity he's being used. So there hasn't been huge reaction yet in Washington. Also, Congress is um, you know, not working this week. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, talking about this. Mike Dorning, Bloomberg White House correspondent, uh, joining us from Washington. Uh, So Trump is going to have Carl Icahn by his side, as widely expected, throughout the campaign uh, as he figures out how to slash regulations. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.